It's one thing to know the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. But it's a whole other thing for the gospel to make an impact on our everyday lives, to shape the very way in which we live. In this text, Paul is rebuking Peter. He's still rebuking Peter from last week, right? So we saw he was rebuking Peter last week. He's still doing it this week for his hypocrisy and his racism against Gentiles. And in these verses, using his own life as an example, Paul defines for Peter and for us the essence of what it means to live a life rooted in the saving work of Christ. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. 17 through 21. Galatians 2, we'll start at verse 17. Paul says, But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these precious words. Please help us to not take them for granted. Help us to not to just see these as words on a page, but as living words, as the words we need tonight. For we know that you have not brought us here on accident, but our sovereign God brought each and every person here tonight for a reason. And so we pray that through your spirit, Father, we would be changed. Not through our own efforts, but through the words of your Son. Amen. So, what does a gospel-rooted life look like? Paul gives us two distinguishing marks of a gospel-rooted life. Number one, a gospel-rooted life looks like the cross. Now, Galatians is littered with references to the crucifixion. It's all over the place. In fact, the cross serves as the center of gravity in the letter. Everything revolves around it. Everything revolves around the cross. Now, when the gospel takes root in your heart, your life won't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but it will be conformed 
to the pattern of the life of Christ. But here's what that means. If your life is conformed to the pattern of the life of Christ, then your life will begin to look more and more like a crucifixion. As you sacrificially give yourself away for your neighbor. Cruciformity is the form your life will take. Conformity to the cross of Christ. I had a professor in college that uh, anytime he would say the word love, he would stick the word cross in front of it. And when I say every time, I mean every time. Every time he would put the word cross in front of it. So, in, for example, so instead of saying that we should love our neighbor, he would say that we should cross love our neighbor. So instead of saying that husbands should love their wives, he would say, husbands should cross love their wives. Do you see what he was getting at? You see, the love that Christ showed us and the love that we are called to love our neighbors with is a self-sacrificial love, a love that looks like the cross. Paul's life looks a lot like a crucifixion, doesn't it? He's been whipped, beaten, stoned, mocked, and ran out of town. But why? Why? Because Paul has a desire deep down in his bones. A desire that runs red hot. And it, it is his desire to take the gospel to every Gentile on earth. That's his desire. But in order to take the gospel effectively to Gentiles, Paul figures that he must become like a Gentile to do so. As he says in 1 Corinthians 9.21, he says, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. Paul sacrifices his comfortable life as a Jew. Why? In order to reach Gentiles who are desperate for the gospel. But why all the suffering, though? Why does he encounter such suffering? Well, it's because the Jews, and even Christian Jews, they hate Paul's approach to evangelism. They hate it. And they are convinced Paul has gone too far. He's gone too far this time. And they are convinced that Paul has actually resorted to sin to reach the Gentile. There's a ringing up here, Blake, if you could help me with that. Uh, they believe that Paul has resorted to sin to reach the Gentiles. Now, I'm sure that Paul is threatened with these accusations all the time. And it is these accusations that he's responding to in verse 17. Look at it. 
But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? See, another, another word that Jews had for Gentiles was sinners. <laughs> right? So that's what he's referring to here. Uh, probably a little tongue-in-cheek here from Paul. Now, ironically, Paul is doing exactly what Peter was doing, right? He's living like a Gentile. He's a Jew living like a Gentile. That's exactly what Peter was doing. But the difference is, Peter was secretly living like a Gentile so that he could enjoy their freedoms. Thus his hypocrisy that Paul talks about. But Paul was openly living like a Gentile so that he might win some for Christ. Now, it's interesting to note that Paul doesn't really dispute the charges against him. He doesn't really dispute it. He acknowledges that from a strict law-observant Jewish standpoint, he could be judged as a sinner, for sure. Uh, But Paul is not really that worried about what strict Jews think. What Paul's worried about is the ridiculous idea that his behavior makes Christ a promoter of sin. That's Paul's problem. Because the exact opposite is true. The only thing Jesus is promoting through Paul is salvation. Verses 17 through 18. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not! Exclamation mark. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. What's Paul talking about there in verse 18? Well, Paul is saying that the only way his behavior actually could become sinful is if he does what Peter did. If Paul were to break fellowship with Gentiles, he would in effect rebuild what Jesus died to tear down, which is what? The dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. You see, the blood of Jesus tears down all walls between all races. And Paul is refusing to rebuild those walls. So, Paul bit the bullet. He lived like a Gentile so that he might win some. And he willingly faced heavy persecution from the Jews. I think of all the times I moan and groan about even the slightest inconveniences in life. My family makes fun of me about this constantly because I'm constantly whining about even the smallest inconveniences. And then I read in 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul explains his inconveniences for preaching the gospel. Would you like me to read them to you? (laughs) Here's what he says. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Wow. And I freak out when my iPhone doesn't charge fast enough. <laughs> so maybe we should take it a bit easy on Peter. Maybe we should. <laughs> I know we were, we were pretty harsh with Peter last week. Let's, let, let's take it a bit easy on him. Yeah, it is true. Peter was afraid of the Jewish circumcision group. That's true. But do you know what he had waiting on him if he continued to eat in fellowship with Gentiles? 39 lashes from the whip. That's what he had waiting on him. Paul received those lashes on five different occasions. But that's what gospel-rooted living is. That's, that's what it is. While you and I will likely not face the whip for our beliefs, though there are thousands of Christians around the world being killed for the gospel, you and I will certainly face at least some level of persecution from our neighbors for our beliefs. There is a price to be paid for living in line with the gospel. There just is. But if we want to see the gospel go forward, it's going to require cross-love from us for those who persecute us. Okay, another way your life will look like a crucifixion is in your relationship to the law. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. Now, once the gospel begins to take root in your heart, you will see that the law can do nothing but accuse you. It can't save you, it can't justify you, it can't sanctify you. It can only condemn. It can only condemn. But in a profound way, this is incredibly helpful for us. It's incredibly helpful for us. This is what Paul is saying when he writes, through the law, I died to the law. Did you catch that? The law itself revealed to Paul the truth that it could not save him. 
By studying the law, Paul saw that he was justly under God's condemnation for his inability and unwillingness to keep it. Therefore, in order to be saved, Paul realized he had to die to the law that condemns and turn to the one who saves. The law showed Paul he needed a savior. So in that way, it's incredibly helpful for us. But this isn't just a one-time thing. It's not. That's kind of the whole point of Galatians. Now, most Christians know to die to the law at salvation. Actually, I would go, probably go as far as to say all Christians know that, right? All true Christians know that. They know they're saved by grace alone. But for some foolish reason, after salvation, many Christians go back to trying to live by the law again. They return to the law. They turn to the law for help with the Christian life. They turn to the law to grow spiritually. But if the law couldn't help you before, it can't help you now. The law can only do for you now what it did for you before, which is get you to Jesus. That's what the law can do for you now. So just as you turn to Christ for salvation, you must turn to Christ for sanctification. And you must continually die to the law. Okay, so a gospel-rooted life looks like the crucifixion. Number two, a gospel-rooted life looks like the resurrection. It looks like the resurrection. Look at verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You see, Cruciformity never ultimately results in death for the believer. It always leads to the glorious dawn of the resurrection from the dead, either in this life or the next. Paul knows this. You can see it in the fearlessness of his ministry. Because Paul had the truth of the gospel worked so deep inside of his heart, he essentially became untouchable. You couldn't touch Paul. I mean, let's think about what the Jews, the Jewish leaders said to him. They're like, oh, well, Paul, uh, if you keep uh, preaching the gospel, then uh, we're going to torture you. And he said, oh, great, to suffer with Christ. And they said, uh, well, uh, well, then, Paul, they were, then we're going to kill you. And he said, ah, to die is gain. And they said, oh, well, um, well, uh, well, then we're just going to let you go then. And he was like, all right, cool. More time to preach the gospel. He's just absolutely untouchable. <laughs> you see it? The truth of the gospel made Paul virtually invincible. I mean, what can you do after all? 
to a dead man. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, how in the world can a man be crucified with Christ when Christ died so many centuries ago? Scripture tells us how. It tells us how. The very moment a man believes that Jesus died for him, that Jesus bore the punishment of sin for him, the very moment he believes that, the great exchange takes place. Anyone here familiar with the term the great exchange? I believe that was Jonathan Edwards that said that. He called it the great exchange. And here's what he means. The moment you believe, here's what happens. Jesus gives you his perfect record of righteousness. And you give him your record of sin. And then God treats Jesus on the cross as if he were you. And then God treats you as if you were Jesus. This is the great exchange. You see, in God's eyes, it's as if you were the one who died on that cross so many years ago. It's as if you paid for your own sins. So when Paul says he died with Christ, in a spiritual sense, that actually is the case. That is the way that God sees it. Now, not only does this mean your sins are forgiven, it does mean that, but it also means that because you died with Christ, you no longer live. You're dead. You're dead. And now Christ lives in you. Christ lives in and through your body to control and to be in charge of your life. Paul is not here denying that he lives in the flesh, okay? He's not denying that, since he still does all the things that belong to the flesh, right? So he still uses things like food and drink and clothing, etc. These are things that belong to the life of every human. But what he says is this is not his true life. It's not his true life. Although he uses these things, he doesn't live for and through them like the world lives for and through them. The world doesn't know how to live for anything other than the things of this world. But Paul does. Paul does. He explains in the second half of verse 20. Let's read it. He says, The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Paul has resurrection life now. Life not tied at all to the things of this world, but to the world to come. 
How? By faith. By faith in the Son of God. You see, in closing, it should be obvious to you that no one can live a cruciformed life or a resurrected life by trying really hard or being really disciplined or by getting some better accountability partners. No. The only way a person can live like that, like Paul, is through faith. Faith firmly rooted in Christ. But that begs the question, how in the world do you get faith like that? Right? How do you get faith like Paul? How do you get the gospel rooted so far down in your heart? Well, let's look at verse 20. Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The source of this new life Paul is living is the extravagant love of Christ poured out in his blood. You see, it wasn't that, it wasn't that Paul got his act right. And then Jesus came to him and saved him. It wasn't that Paul decided to turn over a new leaf and become a Christian. It wasn't that Paul first loved Jesus and gave his life up for him. No. Paul hated Jesus. He hated him. But Jesus loved Paul and gave up his priceless life to save him. And Paul would never forget it. That's what drove him. That's what encouraged him. That's what strengthened him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, Paul says, for Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The love of Christ displayed in the blood of Christ served as the fuel for Paul's life and ministry. It's what got him up in the morning. But does it get you up in the morning? It should. It should. Look again at verse 20. And don't miss the two little words at the end. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. For me. You want a life of purpose. You want a life on fire for God. You want a cruciformed and resurrected life. If you can say this verse along with Paul, you can have it. You can have it in overabundance. The beloved Son of God gave himself for me. For me, a most miserable and condemned sinner. These words and the words of verse 21 are like lightning and thunderbolts from heaven against the burdening doctrine of works righteousness. Verse 21. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Exclamation mark. The tendency of our hearts is to always return to works righteousness. Our hearts will always do that. Our tendency is to set aside grace for obedience, obedience, obedience. But if you were capable of obeying God, if you were capable of obedience, Christ died for nothing. If you were capable of keeping the law by your own efforts, Christ died for nothing. If you could sanctify yourself through good works, Christ died for nothing. But Christ didn't die for nothing. He died for you, and he died for me. You see, it is the gospel itself that produces the faith needed for a gospel-rooted life. As Paul said earlier in 2 Corinthians, it's love, not the law, that compels us now. Let's pray together. Father, what love you have showered us with. We have done nothing in our lives except break your law over and over and over and over again. And yet you have loved us over and over and over and over again. Our sins are great. Your mercy is greater. Your love is greater. And so what can we say, Father, to respond to this extravagant love 
shown to us through your precious Son. Father, we want to do exactly what Paul did. We want to respond in faith. And so we pray tonight, Father, that you would give us the gift of faith to be able to place our faith in your Son and in nothing else. Not in ourselves and not in anything of this world, but just Jesus. But just Jesus. Help us to lay everything else to the side. And to give it all up if we have to. So that we might have Christ. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you for his love. It is the only thing that can sustain us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.